We are in the book of Exodus, chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. chapter 5. Now on Sunday, on Sunday we mentioned that chapters 5 through 12 reveal the great contest. That contest between God and, not Pharaoh, not between God and the Egyptians, but between God and the gods of Egypt. And God will systematically take them out. Systematically he's going to go through with the ten plagues and, and revealing his power and his greatness. He is going to put down the gods of Egypt so that not only Pharaoh and the children of Israel, but all the people of Egypt will see his wonders and his glory. It's a picture, by the way, of that time of tribulation. The last seven years on planet earth when God will make it clear to all people who truly is the Lord. Who really is God. But before God works His power, what's interesting, what we're going to cover tonight in these couple of chapters, is God is setting things up. He basically is positioning people. He's going to position Pharaoh where he wants him. He's going to position Moses where he wants him. He's going to position the children of Israel and the people of Egypt right where he wants them. It's as if he's giving them the best seats in the house so that they can sit back and watch the grand display and experience and know that, in fact, he is God. So these two chapters are chapters of holy positioning. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, we'll get right into it. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Let's hold right there and pray for just a moment. Fathers, we open your word tonight. Uh, Father, we're excited to see what you have to, to teach us. I'm excited to share the things that I've learned. But Lord, I just pray, Spirit, that if there are things outside of these notes and outside of my study that you want to bring to mind and speak to our hearts whether it's individually or Lord through the teaching tonight that you would just be our teacher and that you would show us what you'd have us know that Holy Spirit um, God if there are sections of my notes that that don't apply take them out and uh, cause me to skip over and, and help us Lord just to dig down into your word and to focus on the things that you have to say and teach us and open up our hearts to these things Lord, it's, it's miraculous and amazing the way you do this when we gather together and open the word. How, how each of us hears things that maybe no one else hears, but they're things that you speak to our hearts. And it's an amazing thing your word is and the way your Holy Spirit teaches. We just ask for that tonight and we seek it. And God, as we understand the positioning of Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel and Moses himself, God, would you help us to understand our position in the world today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And they will. They will. That feast of celebration is going to be sacrifices of worship at Mount Sinai. You may recall back in chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign that to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So that's the plan. Even though right now he's telling Pharaoh, give us three days to go worship, God wants him to come worship. Three days or not, the whole point is to get them to the mountain to worship. And the reason why, as we talked about before, God will mention three days, is very simply because he wants to show, reveal the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Reveal that Pharaoh won't even let him go for three days, much less let the people go at all. And so he says... So he sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and tells them to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. But Pharaoh said, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. We looked at Pharaoh's heart on Sunday as he spoke those words. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, if you're wondering about that, God never told Moses and Aaron that he would fall on them with pestilence and the sword if they didn't leave Egypt. 
That wasn't the point. The point was freedom. It was salvation. It was redemption. It was liberation. God wanted to get them out. But the reason they're speaking this way, I believe, is because they're speaking the language of Pharaoh. They even say the God of the Hebrews. Remember, Pharaoh is is a lord over a land that has 3,000 plus gods. So they specify, not one of these, not the frog god, or the Nile god, or the snake god, but the god of the Hebrews has told us we have to go. And and Pharaoh, you understand how gods work. You know, they're they're heavy-handed, and if we don't go, we may suffer pestilence or the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron... And I just see Yule Brenner sitting up there. Why, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Now, I'm going to give you a little something to think about. We're going to delve into this quite a bit tonight. And that's the contrast here between Pharaoh's attitude of work and God's invitation to worship. Pharaoh as the Lord of Egypt and Egypt as a picture of the world. What is the heart of the world? Work. Get the job done. And all the while God's saying, I want you to come worship. We're going to look closely at these things. But the blood in Pharaoh's heart is now coagulating. It is hardening against God and the people of Israel. He doesn't care who the Lord is. He doesn't care who the people are. He doesn't care less about them. All he's concerned about is lording it over his workforce. But who is the Lord here? The Lord is God, as we talked about again Sunday. The issue for Pharaoh was that he had no intention of obeying a God he did not know, and therefore could not know. Now let that sink in. He had no intention of obeying a God he did not know, and because of that, God was a God he could not know. I want to give you some some little clues here, some some, uh, things to jot down about obedience and revelation. And the first one is simply that, obedience yields revelation. Obedience yields revelation. So often we get it backwards. We say, I want revelation and then I'll obey. I want you to reveal yourself to me, God. I want you to make it clear to me what you want me to do and then I'll do it. As opposed to stepping out first. God prefers the other way. Faith first. Obedience first. It yields revelation. Listen, if you want to have a deeper knowledge of the Father, it begins with obedience. Because, and those of you who have followed the Lord for a while, you know the more obedient you are, the more the Lord reveals to you. He doesn't give you too much to handle. You know, he, he knows our little brains can only take so much. And so he'll give us something to do, just one little thing. And then he'll sit back and give us all the time in the world to act on that. And when we act on that, he says, great, you're ready for something else. And he hands us a little bit more. Obedience yields revelation. Jesus put it this way. He said in John 14:15, if you love me... You will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and He will give to you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. It's interesting, in my Bible, between John 14.15 and John 14.16, is one of those, you know little headings that they stick in there that wasn't in the original language, it wasn't in the original text. They just kind of stick it in there. So we tend to separate things out. And this is the first time, literally last week, where I just read straight on through from 15 through 17 and realized they're connected. They're connected. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then guess what you get? Revelation. You get the Spirit. And I will show you what you need to know. And I will teach you what you need to know. And the heading gets out of the way and I begin to understand, yes, obedience yields revelation. If I want to grow in my love relationship with God, obedience is the deal. It's required. And we bang our heads against the wall wondering why God doesn't reveal himself more. Why don't I see more of him or understand more of him? And he's saying, just, there's just one thing you need to do first. Just obey me in this area. And that one thing, by the way, is different. Wherever we're at in our lives, we each have another step to take. We each have an act of obedience that God is asking us to do. And it could be something as simple as calling someone and encouraging them. And even putting it off. Yeah, I don't really want to pick up the phone and do that. Or it could be something as serious as showing up here Saturday morning after the men's breakfast and helping us move this wall. Which is going to be happening Saturday morning after the men's breakfast if you want to help out around 9.30, 10 o'clock. 
we're going to get this wall moved out. Right, Ron? Okay, good. (laughs) And you don't want me doing this by myself. Have you ever noticed that pastors make the worst builders in the world? Have you ever... My grandfather bought a cabin up in the woods that we went and visited one time. This has nothing to do with the study. I just thought it was interesting. And this cabin was the most bizarre structure of anything in the world. And my grandpa used to say, pastors should stick to preaching. So I'm going to do that right now. If you want deeper revelation with the Father, if you want closer intimacy with the Son, if you want a greater awareness of the Holy Spirit, there's a one-word solution. Obey. Thank you, and it's that simple. 2 Corinthians 10.5, great verse, powerful verse. Paul says, we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. I love this. Every lofty thing raised up. All the philosophies and even the grand theologies. All the real smart, pontificating, pipe-smoking professors in the colleges who, who sit around thinking these great thoughts and writing these books that nobody understands. Probably not even them. And Paul says, you know what? We take all that stuff. Those speculations about what might be and we throw it out in favor of obedience to Christ. In favor of the word that, that we know is not just lofty speculation, but is the truth. Let me just ask you to reflect and think about this yourself. Is there an area of disobedience in your life? Is there a single thing? Now, Kathy just shakes her head no, so she's fine. We're good. But is there something in your life maybe that you know God wants you to do, but you're not doing the reality is, until you can step out and obey, you may not receive any further revelation of the Lord. Your relationship may not go any further. Because for it to move forward, obedience yields revelation. We've got to obey. There may be something you haven't done in your life. Uh, just neglecting to do. There may be something that you're doing in direct opposition to God, and you know it, but you're just trying to put it off and not think about it. I don't know. But revelation yields obedience. It flows from obedience. And if you want revelation of God, obey. Moses, and I love this about them, he had the most conversational, the most revelational, the most relational relationship with the Father of any of the prophets of Israel. And the reason is, and you'll even see it tonight, that though he worries, and though he complains, and though he he stumbles around, he still always goes back to God. He brings everything to the Lord. Whether it's good, bad, or ugly, he brings it to God. He's constantly turning around saying, Well, Lord, what about this? Well, Lord, what about that? And you begin to realize over time, this man talks to God a lot. Which is one of the reasons why I think he's such a great leader. And Moses just kept obeying God. With very few exceptions, God said, Do it. Moses may not have understood it, but he did it. And it yielded that great relationship that he had with the Father. Pharaoh, on the other hand, had no desire to obey the Lord. After all, as far as he was concerned, he was Lord, right? Lord of Egypt. Why should I listen to another God? I'm, I'm the God of the Son. I'm the Son of the God Ra, the Sun God, the Son of the Sun God. And he, he really thought it highly of himself, didn't need the Lord, and so he immediately rejects revelation, but something happens. Look at what he does, beginning in verse 5. He drops the hammer on the Israelites. Verse 5 tells us. Again, Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day, he didn't even wait, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now, gang, the straw was important. Because when they made the bricks, it helped the bricks hold together. But even more so, after the bricks hardened, the straw inside as it broke down yielded an acid that even further strengthened the bricks over time. You look at the pyramids, and it's amazing that they've stood, but they are filled with this straw from the Middle East that that literally hardens those bricks. This was an incredibly important element without which you don't make bricks, at least not in that time. And so the people are now going to have to go out and gather for themselves. But, he says in verse 8, the quota of bricks which they were making previously you shall impose on them because they are not to reduce any of it. Because they are lazy and therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so they will not, so they will pay no attention to false words. And you know, you can just hear a soundtrack with this. Dun, 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 dun. Darth Vader comes out, you know, Darth Pharaoh. 
And so here they are. He, he drops the hammer. And this shows us something else. Something else about obedience that Moses discovers. A spiritual truth. And again, it's often a surprise even to us who have been Christians for a long time. Second thing is obedience yields persecution. Count on it. It yields revelation, a deeper relationship with the Lord, yes, but it also yields persecution. Now, you may say, Rick, you bring up this persecution thing a lot. Do you have such a hard life? Not so much. No. My life's pretty good, not too tough. But honestly, I would be thoughtless and careless if we didn't go back to this time and time again. If I didn't continue to remind you of this very biblical truth that obedience yields persecution. If you obey the Lord, you are going to be persecuted. And there's no two ways around it. It's going to come. And it will come from any various source. It may surprise you when it comes from your own family. It may shock you when a close friend suddenly turns on you and all you're trying to do is obey. It may blow you away when people in your own church, prayerfully not this one, but it may happen when you decide to obey the Lord that someone, a brother or sister in Christ, turns on you. Obedience yields persecution. Think about this. Why wouldn't Satan strike at the earliest opportunity? Why not attempt to dissuade a child of God from obedience by making it hard? When we step out in obedience, sometimes finally, I mean, we may have been struggling with something for a long time and finally say, all right, I'm just going to do what the Lord calls me to do. And boom, the second you do that, the hammer comes down. And that's what's happening with Israel. That's what's happening with Moses. Moses finally gets talked into doing this deliverer thing. By God, he goes and the hammer falls. And now Moses is left there just, what? Wait a minute, God, I thought you were with me. Obedience yields persecution. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But he goes on, listen to this, he says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the ancient words as we just sang, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Tim, it's going to get hard. Tim, you're now pastoring this church in Ephesus. It's going to get hard. Prepare yourself for it. Stick to what you've learned. Hold on to the word. Continue to obey. But Paul takes it a step further than that. It's not just that obedience yields persecution. It's that number three, persecution yields revelation. Obedience yields revelation. And obedience yields persecution, but persecution yields revelation, a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding, a closer relationship with the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, Paul says, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And Paul had the right to say that, because he did give up everything. He did lose everything. His life was a shambles after he gave it over to Jesus. Jesus ruined him. And Paul said, it's the greatest thing in the world. My life is completely destroyed and I'm happy. And it's wonderful. And I'm persecuted. He goes on and he says, man, I suffer all these things. I count them as rubbish so I may gain Christ, he says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and and the fellowship of his sufferings that I may be in fellowship with the suffering of Jesus and Sharon and I were talking about this last night and she's got her upper lip curled and you know the reality is and I'm just going to quote you if I may Sharon I want all of you Jesus do we? Except the suffering part. That's the part we don't want. Paul says, no, I want that too. I want the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed, guess what? To his death. Do you realize that Paul's life, if you track it, if you look at his, as his, at his journeys, as he came closer to the end of his life, he determined, first of all, to go back to Jerusalem 
assuming he would be killed there. He set foot on the path of Jesus. And he said in his letters, and you can see this as you read through, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there, if I have to, I will die like Jesus. And I believe in Paul's mindset, that was what he hoped. That his life would so emulate Christ that he would die the same death. But God said, no, I'm not done with you yet, Paul. I want you to go from Jerusalem on up to Rome. And Paul went to Rome also knowing that eventually he would be martyred for his faith as he was. I want to have the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. Why, Paul? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Because you know what? This life is rubbish. That's what this life is. I count all things as loss next to that surpassing value of knowing Christ. Andrew powerfully invited us Sunday during communion to embrace the suffering of Christ. I don't know if I can get my arms around that. As a matter of fact, I doubt there's a one of us, historically or past, present, or future, who will ever be able to get our arms around the suffering of Christ. But can we fellowship with that a bit? I'll tell you what, the more persecuted you are in your life for Jesus, the more you will know Jesus. And the closer you will come to Jesus. Which is why Jesus says, hey, if you're persecuted, praise God. That's good news. Because they did the same thing with the prophets before you, like Moses, who sought that relationship with God. And your persecution will yield revelation. But there's something else I want to share with you here that I think is interesting, and we'll kind of come to this later on, and it's the whole hardness of heart issue with Pharaoh. And we talked about before how Pharaoh hardens his heart seven times, and then the following seven times, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which he had already hardened. And so we understand Pharaoh puts his foot down in a direction, and God comes along and says, okay, that's what you want, I'm going to do that. There's something even more interesting that I just discovered this last week. When Pharaoh hardens his heart, the Hebrew word there is kabed, which means to harden. He kabades his heart. He, he hardens it. But when God hardens his heart, it's a different word. And the word there is kazak, which means to fortify or to strengthen, as in strengthening your resolve. So what happens with Pharaoh is God comes along and Pharaoh hardens his heart and God says, Okay, that's your decision. That's your choice. I'm going to strengthen your resolve. I'm going to fortify your decision. You want to harm your heart against me? I'll even respect and honor that, and I'm going to help you do it. He so respects the decision of the heart, the will of man, that he says, I will harden what you want to have hard. But there's another side to that coin. And that's that I believe God will strengthen the heart of the obedient child to stand when the world is hard against you. He will strengthen the heart either way you choose. If you choose to have a hard heart against God, man, he's going to fortify that. He'll help you along with that. But if you want a soft heart before the Lord, if you want to live for the Lord, if you want to stand for God, no matter how difficult it may be in your life, then the Lord will say, great, I'm going to fortify your resolve. I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to strengthen you. And that's number four, to jot down there, obedience yields godly resolve. Obedience yields godly resolve. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Some of you know earlier this, this year, Jim had a kind of a run-in with a parent at school over what he was teaching and, and teaching too much God stuff. And not, you know, this parent didn't want any of the God stuff involved. And it shook him a bit. But do you know what I saw in Jim, and I know it's what you felt, it did not strengthen your resolve. When you went through that, it was kind of tough, but you came out of it going... I am a son of God here. I am a child of the Father and I am going to stand with Him. And I saw that in His life and that's what happens is we get a strengthening of our resolve as we obey God even as we're persecuted. And I love that Paul, or Peter says He Himself perfects, confirms, strengthens and establishes you. Well, verse 10. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I'm not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten 
when we're asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? And what is going on here? They're now having to scatter and they're, they're having to pick up and get they're, they're into double time, overtime work just to get the job done. And Pharaoh, very smartly, what did he say back in verse 9? Let the labor be heavier so they will not pay attention to false words. Pharaoh wants to divert the worship of God. Because that's what they asked for. Remember, Pharaoh at this point doesn't even know that God is planning to take them out completely. All he knows is God wants his people to come worship for three days. That's it. But Pharaoh says, they want to worship, I'm going to give them work. I'm going to make the work harder and heavier and I'm going to increase their labor and divert them from even worshiping God in their homes because they're going to be so busy out gathering stubble and straw they're not even going to have time in their home in the evening to worship their God. I'm going to make the work harder and this is direct insight into Satan's agenda in our lives. I will make the work harder and they will not have time for worship. The harder they work, the busier they get, the more they're out there doing, 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 the more their labor increases, the less time they're going to have for worship. The less focus they're going to have on the Lord. Pharaoh sees worship as a waste of time and resources. And by the way, there was another servant of God who saw, who saw worship as a waste of time and resources. In John chapter 12, and I'll just read this story to you. Beginning in verse 1, it tells us that Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So now he's back at Lazarus' house. And they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, as Martha was wont to do. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now that's a powerful verse right there. This is the guy who was dead just, you know, a few days before or months before. And now they're back in Bethany, and Lazarus is hanging out with Jesus. The guy who was dead is now just there. You know, amazing. Incredible. And Martha's very busy. She's serving. Which again, that's what she does. Martha is steward. So she's out there serving. Number th- verse 3 tells us Mary then, and you just you gotta love Mary, she took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Which by the way, that perfume cost the equal, the equal of about a year's wages. This was not cheap stuff. But Judas was there. And he was intending to betray him. And he said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? (laughs) That wasn't what he wanted. Verse 6 tells us, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And by the way, if you feel sorry for Judas later because Satan enters him, Satan only enters a heart that is ready for him. Prepared for him. Judas all along, even as part of the disciples, even while he's listening to the teachings of Jesus, and the wonderful things that Jesus is doing, he's watching the miracles, and he's pilfering from the money box. He's stealing from the Lord. Amazing. And so he says, hey, she's sitting there worshiping with this perfume and it's smelling up the house. Why wasn't it sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Namely me. (laughs) Now he said this again, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. But Jesus said, let her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Mary was worshiping Jesus in the sweetest possible way. She's preparing him for his crucifixion. Did Mary know she was doing that? I don't think so. But she was doing it out of love for the Lord. She was worshiping. And Judas says, you know what? That's a waste. That perfume was worth a lot of money and you just put it on his feet? That's a waste. Let me tell you what a waste is. A waste is any missed opportunity to worship the Father. That's a waste. It's working so hard there's no time for the word. It's moving so fast that we can't stop and just pray. It's considering worldly gain like Judas did more important than worshipful giving. And what's interesting to me is later Jesus will call Judas in John 17:12 he will call him the son of perdition. And perdition means waste. Judas saw worship as a waste and Jesus said, "No, Judas, you misunderstand." Your very life is a waste. 
Because you're chasing after being on the right side. And when he first lined up with Jesus and followed Jesus, he, he thought of Jesus, I believe, as you know, someone who was going to overthrow Rome. Good, we can, we can get the job done. But when he saw Jesus wasn't going to do it his way, he went then to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he wanted them to get the job done. And his life ended up being a waste, the son of perdition. Well, isn't it, isn't it interesting that Pharaoh's answer for keeping the Israelites from worship was increasing their hours at work? And I just wonder, do you think that that applies to us much today? How hard are we working? And how often are we just missing the sweetness of worship and time in the Word? Verse 15, Exodus chapter 5. Then the foremen, the sons of Israel, came and they cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it's the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. And the foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble, <laughs> because they were told, You must not reduce your amount, your daily amount of bricks. The foreman of Israel go for help, but they go to the wrong guy. They go to the guy who put them in trouble in the first place. They head straight to the man and they ask Pharaoh for help, for relief. But Pharaoh is the one who gave the law. And they will do it again, by the way. This is not the only time Pharaoh will, or Israel will run to Pharaoh for help. In fact, in Isaiah's day, after hundreds of years in the promised land, after being established by God, and after chasing after foreign idols, and after the kingdom splitting into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah will go back to Egypt and ask for help. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 1 tells us, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt will be your humiliation. The children of Israel run to Pharaoh, the wrong guy. And oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry to God everything in prayer. We run to other people. We run to the boss at work, or we run to the spouse, or we run to the pastor. <laughs> Careful running to the pastor. And God's standing there saying, Am I not sovereign? Am I not sufficient to meet all of your needs? And yet you would run to Pharaoh? And that's what Israel do. They go straight to Pharaoh. They run to the wrong leader. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks find, finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. And something fascinating in that verse. Ask, seek and find. Or knock. Ask, seek and knock. These three words in the Greek language are written in the present imperative active. You'll want to note that. It is important however. The present imperative active. What does that mean? It means these three words are written as immediate they are written as commands, and they are written as ongoing. In other words, how it should read is, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's an ongoing process. It's not ask once, and then walk away and don't ask me. It's not knock once or seek once. Keep seeking. Keep seeking me, Jesus says. It's so easy to cry out to the wrong Lord, just like the Israelites did. They went to the wrong person. And Jesus says, you keep seeking me. Verse 20. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron, and as they, as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hands to kill us. And then Moses returned to the Lord. I have that underlined in my Bible. Because Moses went to the right guy. 
Then Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done harm to his people and you've not delivered your people at all. Now you may say, Oh man, Moses, watch yourself. You better ground yourself. Lightning's going to strike. Be careful. Watch what you say, Moses. But I love this. Moses may be doubting. He may be worrying, but he's doing it to the Lord. He's not running around speculating, talking to other people. He's going straight to the Father. We have a secret here as to why Moses was such a great leader. He returned to the Lord. And time and time again, he will do that. He keeps asking. He keeps seeking. He keeps knocking. If he's frustrated, he takes his frustrations to the Father. If he's sad, he takes his sorrow to the Father. If he's worried, he takes his worry to the Father. If he's doubting, he takes his doubts to the Father. And of course, when he's joyful and and full of praise, he takes that to the Father as well. And a person like that, God can use. A person who takes it to the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And that word now just stands out. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now everybody's in place. Everyone's seated. Pharaoh's in the front row. He's ready to go. Now, Moses, because you return to me, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. In other words, he is going to be driven to drive them out. He's not going to do it because he wants to. He's going to do it because I want it to happen. And that's going to be painfully clear. He says, I will do this. Moses, now you're ready. Verse 2 goes on. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. But my name, Lord, I did not make known to them. My name, Lord, I did not make known to them. And again, we pointed this out before. There's a distinction in God's name. El Shaddai, or from the word Elohim, the Creator, the great Creator God. And Lord is Yahweh, the personal, intimate God. You may recall I mentioned a few weeks ago that in Genesis chapter 1 we see Elohim creating. In Genesis chapter 2 we see Yahweh, Jehovah, the tetragrammaton, that Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, the Lord, is creating Adam and Eve intimately. And so God's now saying it's personal. You, Moses, and the very people themselves are going to know me in ways that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joseph, they didn't know me like you are going to know me. In verse 4 he says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. Now I've just got to mention this again. I know I say this a lot, but we have yet another blow here in the Bible, another biblical blow to replacement theology. And I'm talking about and mentioning replacement theology a lot because I have been discovering it is rather strong in this area. You might think that May 14, 1948 would just shut down this debate. Replacement theology is that belief that says Israel blew it, therefore all the promises, the covenants God made with Israel, those go to the church. The curses Israel gets to keep. But we take the promises with us. And so the church is new Israel, it's new Jerusalem, and we have all the grand and glorious prophetic promises, and we miss the fact that God is capable of handling two prophetic programs. One for Israel, and one for the church. And they are connected, but they are different. They are separate. The Friends of Israel Global Report, Volume 3, in 2004, I just received this in the mail just the other day, Rob Condon is a worker in the United Kingdom. Listen to this. He says the vast majority of national churches in the UK do not reach out to the half million Jewish people here and it is primarily due to replacement theology which teaches that all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament now apply to the church and only the curses apply to the Jewish people. What's the problem in the UK? Why is it that they feel that way? Why is replacement theology so strong? And I'm going to say this, and it may sound harsh, but folks, replacement theology is strong when you don't know your Bible. When you know your Bible, it blows it off the charts. Because, as I told a friend recently, there are seven covenants, eight possibly, but seven definite covenants that God makes with Israel, and only one of the seven is conditional. And that's going to be the Mosaic covenant where he says, you need to keep these laws and I will give you these blessings in return. Every other covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, 
and even the Davidic covenant later on, all of those covenants God said, I will do this, I will do that, I will take care of this, and there's not a single if you involved in it. The people in the UK don't know their Bible. Alright, that's a little bit of a generalization. Well, let me share this with you. 55% of all Scots have never attended any type of church service. 55%. This is worse. Current church attendance in Scotland today is between 2 and 4%. I almost fell out of the chair when I read that. In Great Britain, the average Bible teaching church attendance is between 10 to 20 people. We would be larger tonight than the average church in Great Britain is today. The Bible is not being taught. And yet replacement theology is subscribed to. By the way, replacement theology was heartily subscribed to by Hitler, which is one of the reasons he wanted the Jews wiped out as Christ killers. Not that he really believed much in Christ either. But gang, the problem with replacement theology is again, it's not biblical, but even more so, if God doesn't keep his unconditional covenants and promises with Israel, what makes us think he's going to keep his promises to us? I'll tell you what. I have blown it as much as the children of Israel. Now, I may not have been an idolater, per se, but there's enough sin in my life to keep me far from the gates of heaven. Here again, listen to the unconditional words of the Lord. Verse 4, I establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians who are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Not Abraham's covenant. It's not that God says, oh, wow, you know, Abraham did follow through, didn't he? So I need to follow through, too. No, God says, it's my covenant. I remember it, and I am sticking to it. And then he goes on, and it's even more powerful. The Lord gives seven I will statements. We looked at these on Sunday. Let me read through them quickly. He says, say therefore to the sons of Israel... Number one, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's salvation. Secondly, he says, I will deliver you from their bondage. That's liberation. Number three, he says, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And number three is redemption. And we saw on Sunday how Isaiah 53.1 indicates to us that the outstretched arm of the Lord is Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 1, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it goes on to describe Jesus in the rest of that chapter. Psalm 136, verse 12, tells us, and we sing this a lot, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, His love endures forever. And the mighty outstretched arm of God is Jesus. But gang, think about this. It also powerfully foreshadows the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. Mighty, bared, sleeves rolled up, ready to die. Redemption. Number four, going on, he says, Then I will take you for my people. And the fourth one is adoption. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you in. Israel, you're going to be my people. Number five, he says, I will be your God. Number five is revelation. And you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. Jehovah, I am the Lord your God. Not just your God Elohim, but Yahweh your God. You're going to know me intimately, personally. Revelation. He goes on in verse 8 to say the sixth of his I will promises. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's direction. And number seven, he says, I will give it to you for a possession. Literally an inheritance. And again, that is... Possession. I will, I will, I will, I will. Seven times, I will. And there's not an if you in the whole bunch. Just I will. This is my covenant. This is my promise and I will do it. And gang, this is not just Israel's immediate future that he's talking about. This possession of the land, this inheritance... Amos chapter 9 verse 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman... I love this verse. When the plowman will overtake the reaper. In other words, you're out there reaping out of the fields and the plowman's right behind you already planting for the next harvest because the the field is so good. He says, the treader of grapes will overtake him who sows seed. 
the guy will be treading out the grapes you're going to be getting ready to sow the seed but he's already treading the grapes and, and the wine is ready and, and you're just barely getting the seed sown because the wine was ready so quickly he says the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved literally will be soft soft hills sweet wine in the mountains also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit and I will plant them on their land and they will never again be rooted out from their land which I have given them says the Lord your God these seven I will statements in God's program they are God's program for Israel and what an amazing thing they parallel his program for us today parallel promises two different prophetic programs but parallel promises. Well, back in, in Exodus chapter 6. Again, you may have noticed that God doesn't add a single if you to the list of I wills. Because the gospel is all about what he has done. It's all about the good news. It's not about the work that I do. It is nothing but good news. And I read these and I think, man, these seven I wills are stirring. They're exciting. God gives these to Moses and says, take them back to Israel. And I think, wow, can you just imagine being there when Moses is sharing these? Listen to what the, the Lord said he's going to do. Bam, 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 bam. And I would be just going, wow, this is great. And how does Israel respond? Verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? On account of their despondency and their cruel bondage. Do you understand that at this point in Israel's history, they were saved? They were still in Egypt. But as far as God was concerned, their salvation was a done deal. They were saved. They were as good as in the promised land because God was stepping in. It would be literally days before they saw the redemption of the Lord, before they were led out with a mighty outstretched arm. And yet they were despondent. They weren't even able to be excited about their salvation. And I see so many Christians like that today. We are a saved people. We're going home. Our promised land is prepared and waiting and we are days away from going. And I wonder how can a Christian live despondently? How can we be oh, bogged down and be in despair and be worried and just, oh, it's so hard. You ever feel like Israel felt just on account of their despondency and cruel bondage you just can't be excited about maybe what the Lord has called about the salvation that you know you have we may not um, well we have a say in, in our salvation and that we accept it by faith but we also have a say in something else we have a say in how we travel we have a choice we can travel with despondency and, and still be saved I mean Israel was despondent they were still going to be saved they were broken and sad and beaten down and, and just worked but they were going to be saved. And we can be that way. And you have every right. I'm just going to give you pastoral permission here. To be as depressed and despondent and sad and in despair as you want to be, you're still going to go to heaven. Okay? And all of us will be real glad when you get there. Because we're a little tired. No, we're not. We can, learn, we can decide to live that way. I can be a despondent. I can be an Eeyore. Or I can be a Tigger. <laughs> That's a great, great picture, isn't it? The people who come to church and they think, Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Say the wretch. And they just kind of hang on that word, wretch. Like me. Or, <laughs> we can be like Tigger. We can be excited. We can live joyfully. And we can move toward the Lord with excitement and vision. And man, our salvation is a done deal. How bad can it get here? Flip in your Bibles real quickly to 2 Kings. I've got to show you something that I just think is really cool. When I across this last week, I, I shared it with our elders last night. 2 Kings chapter 13. At the very end of the very powerful life of Elisha. 2 Kings 13. There's a little story that happened. In fact, it's the last thing that Elisha is going to do before he dies. Tells us in verse 14 of 2 Kings 13, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel at that time, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What's he saying? 
Well, Joash is saying, oh no, Elisha, don't die. If you die, we won't have the power. And our chariots and our horsemen, we're going to be in trouble. We need to hear, don't die. It's a very selfish attitude. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it, and you can almost see Joash kind of starting to roll his eyes. That's one of those prophecy things, okay. Maybe one of those word pictures. Put my hand on the bow. And so he put his hand on it, and then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window toward the east. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot! And he shot. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. That word stopped literally means he stood. He tapped the ground. He took the arrows. Elisha saying, strike the ground, king. And he goes... Strike, strike, strike. What? And he stands there. And so the man of God was angry with him. And said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aaron until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Three times. Guess what? The king of Israel was short on faith and definitely short on passion. He had no vision. He wasn't really able to see beyond. And Elisha's doing the prophet thing. And so he just taps three times, tap once, tap twice, tap three. No passion. Gang, we need to shoot the arrow with passionate faith. As a matter of fact, this just hit me this week, that the arrow of deliverance for us is our keep-seeking missile. We have a keep-seeking missile. It is our faith. It's our prayer. Keep-seeking. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep going back to the Father. Keep doing these things. Otherwise, gang, our deliverance is only partial. Our salvation is yet to come, but it's not today. I think the Bible's clear. We can live in our salvation right now. No, we're not living in heaven. Yes, the persecution will come. Yes, life will get hard. But man, don't you want a passionate deliverance? How would it have been for Israel if the first time Moses showed up, they went, we're getting out of here? Yes! All right, gather the straw. It doesn't matter. This is great. We'll sing while we're doing it and everything's good. And then they come back and say, hey, you know what? Pharaoh said we have to keep doing the work. But who cares? We're going to be saved. This is wonderful. It would have been a lot more fun to read than it is right now. Back to Exodus chapter 6. Gang, God says, I will. I will. I will. And we say, yeah, but... Or what if, or maybe, gang, we hear the word, but we do not receive the word. But if we receive the word, gang, if we truly take it in, we will not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Doers. God, give us a church filled with doers of the word. A church filled with doers of the the word will be unstoppable in the world. The Bridge Christian Fellowship will be a mighty force. Whether it's four people or four hundred people, it will be an unstoppable force against the evil in this world, in this section of the world, if we are doers of the word. No one can stop us. Because the word is the Lord's, and it is his sword, and it is powerful. Well, back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. How many times has God said this? I mean, over and over, Moses comes back, Go tell him. Okay, so he goes to tell him. And he comes back, Go tell him. So he goes to tell him, and he comes back, You know, he just keeps the whining. And God says, Go back and tell him, Moses. I love that because God just does not give up. He just keeps sending Moses back again and again. As a matter of fact, in the face of their doubt, God puts a charge up their backsides. Listen to this. You go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Oh, here goes the unskilled in speech thing again. You know... I appreciate that Moses is at least talking to the Lord about this. He is bringing it before the Lord. And because of this, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. See? 
with a charge up their backsides. He gave them a charge, not just to Pharaoh, but to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He said, go back and tell them again, and tell them again, and again, Moses, give them vision. And the fact that God refuses to give up on Moses and the people of Israel must have been incredible comfort to Moses over time. Now it's interesting right here in the chapter that Moses kind of stops the story and draws back and gives us a genealogy. But if you're a student of the Bible, you know there's a whole lot more to the genealogies than just names. There's always something to be learned. And there's more to be learned, by the way, in this genealogy than we have time for tonight. But I want to show you a couple things. But the bottom line, understand this. This whole last section of chapter 6, it's the credentials of Moses. It's interesting that it's right here when Moses is feeling unskilled and a failure and worthless that he stops. And in looking back and writing these things out by by the power of the Spirit, Moses stops and writes down his credentials realizes that he comes from pretty good stock. Verse 14. These are the heads of their father's household, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn. Remember Reuben? Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, these are the families of Reuben. Now the sons of Shimon or Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ahad, Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, these are the families of Shimon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi. Now, Levi is important because now we're going to kind of go just the direction of Levi. According to their generations, Levi's sons are Gershon and Kohath and Merari, and the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, who is Levi's firstborn, Libni and Shimei, according to their families, and the sons of Kohath, his secondborn, Amram, there's a name to circle, and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel, and the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. And the sons of Merari, the thirdborn of Levi, Kamali and Mushi, (laughs) that sounds like a... Chinese dish. These are the families of the Levites according to their generations. And verse 20 tells us that Amram married his father's sister Jochebed and she bore him Aaron and Moses and the length of Amram's life was 137 years. And so you get this picture of where Moses and Aaron come from. They are of the tribe of Levi. They come from very good genes. Levi. Jeans. Sometimes I'm just... Good jeans. Levi's jeans. Okay, verse 21. Stick to preaching, right? The sons of these are Korah and Nepheg and Zikri. My parents were going to call me Zikri, but they decided to go with just Ricky instead. The sons of Uzziel are Mishael and Elzaphan and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, and the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. Guys, these four names are very important because they will become the first priests under Aaron of the Levitical priesthood. The sons of Korah. Korah is mentioned now a second time. And that's a name to be aware of. His sons are Asir and Elkanah and Abiasaph, and these are the families of the Korahites. Aaron's son Eleazar married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. And these are the heads of the father's households of the Levites according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh the king of Egypt about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Now these are the credentials of Moses and Aaron. Moses is making it clear. We come from the tribe of Levi. We come from that line. But folks, the credentials are marred. There are a couple of stains on the royal robes of the soon-to-be Levitical priests. And the first stain is this man named Korah in verse 21. Who is Korah? And why is he mentioned here twice? Okay, he's the son of Izhar, brother of Amram. He's Moses and Aaron's cousin, Korah is. But he's mentioned here for one reason. Korah, along with the credentialing of Moses and Aaron, God is red flagging Korah for a serious rebellion down the road. 
Numbers chapter 16 will tell us the story of the rebellion of Korah as it is known. Even as far into the Bible as Jude at the very other end where Jude talks about the rebellion of Korah as an example of people who have really gone down deep. In fact, the rebellion of Korah is so bad that all the people who follow Korah, the Bible tells us that the earth will open up and swallow them alive to Sheol. They will drop into the earth and be killed that way. The rebellion was so bad. And Korah is mentioned right here in this line, this priestly line of Levi. And it's not a good picture. But there's another stain that goes back a bit further. Levi, as a tribe, is under a curse. They're under a curse. Genesis chapter 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Levi is the father of Moses and Aaron and the priests of Israel. That's the high priestly line. And yet Jacob is prophetically speaking the words of God here saying, Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. These are the priests of Israel. Why would God say that? Why would this line be so cursed? Dang, I think it's perfect. The tribe of Levi, Levi should be the cursed line. Moses should come from the tribe of Levi. Why? Because the very thing Moses represents can only bring a curse. It cannot save. All throughout the New Testament, every time the Old Testament, or many times, not every time, most times the Old Testament is referred to, the law is referred to, it's called Moses. They have Moses and the prophets to teach them. You can go to Moses and the prophets. Moses is most intimately tied with the law. And gang, the law is a curse. All the law can do is curse. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13 says, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Romans 5.20 says, The law came in, Moses brought the law, this son of Levi brought the law so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Levi is the perfect tribe to be the priest of Israel and for Moses to come through because Moses would bring the law and all the law could do was curse. Even today, the law is a curse. And if you want to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. And you will be cursed by the law. Let me leave you with a positive regarding Levi. He's also the third son of Israel. And the number three in the Bible in biblical numerology is the number of redemption. The three. The number three. John chapter 2 verse 19 after Jesus cleared the temple the Jews said to him what sign do you show us as your authority as your credentials literally for doing these things and Jesus said destroy the temple. And after three days I will raise it up. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, one of my favorite verses. The Jews are saying, come let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He'll revive us after two days, which I believe we see happening to Israel right now. But he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to give you my non-negotiable validating sign of credentials as Mashiach. On the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Verse 28. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. And in verse 30, but Moses said before the Lord, but behold, I'm unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? He still doubts. He still doesn't get it. He still doesn't know, but he's still bringing it to the Lord. And we will see next week how Pharaoh will listen to him. But before we go, let me remind you of something here. God takes his time, as he has through all history, to prepare man for what's coming. 
Before the flood, he took several hundred years prior to the flood to prepare the people for the fact that the flood was coming. He all, all throughout biblical history prepares the people, readies them, positions them for the great contests that happen in this world. And that's what he's just done in these two chapters that we've read. He has positioned Israel. He's positioned Pharaoh. He's even positioned Moses who now is just saying, how will he listen to me? And God says, I'll show you how. Are you ready? I'm going to show you. And the thought that came to me through this week as I read these things is that as God is carefully preparing the seating chart for Pharaoh and Moses and Israel and Egypt, as God stacks the cards against himself and prepares a seemingly impossible mission for this man Pharaoh, or Moses, he has done the same for us. And that right now, we are in a place where we are positioned for the great contest. For the next big thing, and I don't know if you know this, but on the prophetic timeline, the next thing that needs to happen The next thing in God's plan, biblically, that will happen is the rapture of the church. There's nothing else that need happen before that happens. That's next. That's what's coming. That's what we are positioned for. And I want to encourage you, as much as we have a front front row seat with Moses and, and Israel here in Egypt, that you take a front row seat in the position of waiting for that great and glorious calling home. That you sit ready and prepared and tigerish in that position and in that place. Wait for it. Watch for it. God's going to take us out. Let's pray. Father, I think of the Rich Mullins song when he sang, When I go, I want to go out like Elijah with a whirlwind to fuel my chariot of fire. I want to live life, Father, as though riding a chariot of fire to the place of my salvation. And God, we have that choice, that opportunity. Oh, we can, we can whine like Israel and we can despair and we can be despondent and our salvation is still nigh. It is still coming. It is still very close. And Father, it's going to be a wonderful day when all the despondent people in the world who have a relationship with Christ but just haven't been able to get over the burden of living will be raised up and will be blown away and will finally leave all despondency behind. Father, I don't want to live that way. And I don't believe there's a person here tonight who wants to live that way. Who wants to let the the hard stuff of life beat us down. Yes, we want to accept and embrace the sufferings of Christ. But we know that Christ, though He was a man of sorrow, also for the joy set before Him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. And so, Lord, if we accept the suffering of Christ and the persecution, may we also walk with that deep abiding joy that is set before us. So that we, like Christ, may endure whatever is thrown at us in this short amount of time as we are positioned for the coming of Jesus again. Will you direct our hearts and our minds, we pray, over and over, Father. Direct our minds to readiness and our hearts to waiting and longing for your return. That our life here may be filled with the joy of the Spirit. And overwhelmed with that passionate fire. May we be, like, like Elisha asked, may we be pounding those arrows on the ground over and over and over in great faith, knowing that you are going to do great things in our lives personally and in this church, Lord in this fellowship. God, increase our trust. Prepare our hearts. And may we, Lord, not even be seated, but standing up and waiting when you call us home on that great and glorious day. And we pray for that day and we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And we lift up this prayer and our time to you and worship tonight, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.